Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Richard Reeves, who's a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution, where he holds the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead Chair and is the director of the Future of the Middle Class Initiative. He's also the author of the thought-provoking new book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. The book, which documents the growing underperformance of boys and men in school, work, and across other socioeconomic metrics, has grabbed the center of the public policy debate in the United States and elsewhere. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book and why we need to refocus our efforts on boys and men. Richard, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Sean, and thank you. How did you first get interested in in the outcomes for boys and men? As someone interested in social mobility and cultivating a modern middle class, why pursue this topic? Well, as you just indicated, my work has historically been around issues of economic inequality, social mobility, and that, of course, particularly in the U.S. context, inevitably draws you into questions of race equity because just differences, particularly in outcomes for black Americans, are so stark. But as I was doing that work, what I, I kept stumbling across gender as a factor as well, and, and not in the, not always, at least in the expected direction. So just kind of number of ways in which it was boys and men who were on the kind of sharpest end of many of the inequalities that we were looking at, and boys and men who were very often struggling. So just in terms of upward mobility, for example, big differences in upward mobility, obviously in education, there's now been a kind of dramatic overtaking and so that gender inequalities in education are now pretty wide at every level. And so if you're interested in human flourishing more broadly, but in economic mobility and economic flourishing, then actually the, the, the problems of boys and men became frankly unavoidable in that context. One of your key findings is that most American men are doing less well economically than most men were in 1979. As you put it in the book, if American men were a country, the country would be poorer than it was 40 years ago. The U.S. economy has been growing over that span. We've seen tremendous progress in technology. We've seen progress for women. So help us understand, Richard, what's going on? How have most men failed to reap the benefits of four decades of progress? Well, the, the first thing to point out is just underline what you've already said, Sean, which is obviously there's been a lot of growth in that period. And also that for men at the top, uh, there has been strong earnings growth. So men at the top are actually earning more than men at the top were in 1979. But that's not true for most men. So for about 60% of men, 
actually their earnings are just, and of course, adjusting for inflation, a little bit lower today than the bottom 60% of men were 40 years ago. And I think that's for a number of reasons. One is there's just been a huge deindustrialization, of course, a big decline in manufacturing jobs, other traditionally male jobs in heavy industries and so on. Obviously, increased competition from free trade, all the stuff that you're well aware of and your listeners will be well aware of, but those have disproportionately really impacted the the male professions, the male occupations. And so it's had a disproportionate effect on men. And then, of course, the US has a pretty, a pretty thin safety net. And so what that means is that for a lot of those men, it was really difficult to recover or to get retraining and so on. And so I think it just hit, hit, it hit, a lot of these trends have hit men in actually a lot of advanced economies, but it seemed to hit US men particularly hard. And I think that's because a lot of those economic trends were, were particularly sharp here in the US, but also because there wasn't as much to fall back on for a lot of those men. And so that created more of a downward spiral here than you would have seen in other countries. I'll come back to the subject of the transition from a goods producing economy to a knowledge economy and the the gendered consequences of that shift. But I want to stay on the topic of uh, the the differing performance of of men and women. The the book outlines in great detail how women have generally performed well over the same period. We've seen increases in labor force participation, educational attainment, income growth, etc. Has that happened at the expense of men? Is there something of a zero-sum dynamic across genders, or is that the wrong way to think about these issues? I think that's mostly the wrong way to think about these issues. And that's obviously important empirically to get that right, but it's also important, I think, just politically and how you talk about this, because I think it's too easy to look at some trends for two groups. One group doing much better historically one you know one set of lines going up on the chart another set of lines going down and zoom ah it's because of the first that the second is true but in the case of the labor market that's to fall into a really bad economic fallacy which is the idea of a lump of labor or a lump of wages right there's only so much work to go around there are only so many wages to go around so by definition if women are taking more of them that means there's less left over for men that's just completely wrong way to think about the economy there is no reason why men can't see wage gains and employment improvements as women are doing it too the the thing that's hit men has been a series of shocks which we've already discussed and a change in the shape of the labor market which has disproportionately affected male jobs difficulty for men men have been slow to adapt to some of those those changes partly because they haven't had really much help to it to adapt to them. And that's left a lot of them just behind the behind the curve, essentially, in terms of what's happening. Meanwhile, women have just been you know, rising up uh, for some of the reasons that you just identified. And those two things are happening at the same time. But just because two things are happening at the same time doesn't mean that one is causing the other. The only thing I'll say, slight caveat, is that I think there's some evidence that particularly relatively modestly educated working class white men in the US actually may have been because of union because of strong unions and exclusion of women and people of color they may actually have been able to get some rents in the labor market so there's some sense they may have been able to secure higher earnings than they would have been able to in a more meritocratic labor market and as they've seen greater competition that, that those rents have come off. As Scott Winship, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, have done some work on that. And I think that, that is, that is prob- there's probably some truth to that story, but that's a very specific group. And I think as a general proposition, it's just false to think about this as zero sum. One of the book's most fascinating insights regarding boys and men is in the educational sphere. 
that they're underperforming in the K-12 system and they're increasingly being surpassed in post-secondary education. Again, progress for girls and women is a positive economic and social development. But if we can set that aside, what's behind the underperformance of boys and men? Has there been a change, Richard? Or were previous generations simply beneficiaries of a system that preferenced boys and men? Well, I think actually that the the system itself never preferenced, (laughs) gave a preference to boys and men. I think that society and culture gave a preference to boys and men. And so what that meant was that boys and men were encouraged to go to college. Like my, my own father, right? he, he was encouraged to go to college because he knew he was going to have to be a breadwinner. And he went to a school where, of course, you know, the boys would be talking about which college they were going to go to if they were going to go to college. That wasn't true for women. And so actually, once we women were actually having their educational aspirations and opportunities artificially capped by a sexist society, once the cap came off, they not only caught up with men, but blew right past them, which no one expected, by the way. I mean, that when all the focus in the 70s in particular was on like getting gender parity, no one said, well, wait, what if the lines keep going? What if we end up with more gender inequality, but just the other way around? Like there was no discussion of that because no one expected it. And I think the fact that it's happened shows that in many ways, the education, the education system favors girls and women. They develop you know, certain skills, the ability to learn, the ability to pay attention earlier than boys do at critical moments. Obviously, the teaching profession is very female and becoming more so. That seems to have some effect on boys as well. And so ironically, the success of the women's movement has exposed the ways in which the education system is actually structured in ways that don't favor boys and men, but under conditions of sexism, that was that you couldn't you couldn't see that. But I think we are now seeing that. One subject that can be a bit fraught, particularly for some on the left, is the role of marriage and family. It's to your credit that you're prepared to take this on, dispassionately and delicately, but directly. What role does family stability, and in particular, the presence of fathers, play in your story? Well, I'm glad you framed it that way, because there are, there are a number of things that get confused here. And I think in particular, the importance of fathers gets wrapped up with the centrality of marriage. And those are distinct. And one of one of the things I really try to do is make those distinct. Now, of course, for for those on the left, it might be less for some on the left, it might be less of a problem. If you start with the position that fathers don't matter at all and marriage is a patriarchal institution, then there's nothing to see here. But actually for those on the right who do think that fathers matter, they are then inclined to say that's why we need marriage. But marriage as an institution for attaching fathers to children is is becoming obsolete in the rearview mirror. And that's for the good reason that traditional marriage was founded on the economic dependency of women on men. That was the central goal of the women's movement to make that less true. And it's been spectacularly achieved in, in most advanced economies. That means marriage is a choice, not a necessity. And it means that the role of fathers has become a little bit more contingent, a little bit less, less secure, but no less important. And so my view is that the way to First of all, recognize that fathers do matter in ways that are complementary to but distinct to mothers, and therefore support fatherhood, but support fatherhood, not marriage. Now, it may well be that supporting fatherhood will lead to more marriage. I don't know. But I do know that with 40% of births now taking place outside marriage in the US, among among non-college educated Americans, it's more than half. 40% of the main breadwinners in the US now are are women. Uh, this, the idea that we can sort of 
bring fathers back into children's lives through marriage strikes me as just wrong and, and nostalgic. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that fathers don't matter. <laughs> and so I think we need to really re-put fatherhood on a pedestal, but a different kind of pedestal and say, and the message shouldn't be, you matter as a dad if you're a breadwinner and married to the mum. The message should be, you matter as a dad, regardless of whether you're with the mum and regardless of whether you're a breadwinner. If we send the old message in a world where that is less and less true, the effect of that is to bench too many of our fathers. Uh, your colleagues, Isabel Salhill and Ron Haskins, popularized the idea of a success sequence about a decade or so ago as a means for understanding the behaviors and characteristics associated with positive socioeconomic outcomes. What is the success sequence? How does it apply to your analysis? And Richard, to what extent does it have explanatory power for the trends that you document with respect to the economic and social outcomes for, for boys and men? What the success sequence did was a descriptive data exercise which showed that among Americans who completed high school, who were in full-time employment, and who married before they had children, the risks of poverty were very, very small. I think the number is like 3% of that group were in poverty. Whereas anybody that didn't, that the, and the more of those hurdles you didn't clear, if you like, the greater your risk of poverty. The, the important point of is that it was descriptive as much as prescriptive and that much of the work in the success sequence was actually being done by full-time employment. And much of the work around marriage was simply to say like two earners. If you've got two earners in the household, you're less likely to be poor. And so a lot of it was driven by that employment effect. And actually the way that they looked at how marriage affected it was, was a little bit more complex than the headlines suggested. It was more, it was really more around getting around intention and being with the person you meant to have, meant to have the child with, rather than it being an unintended pregnancy and birth with somebody you didn't plan to become a parent with. So what does it tell us? I think what it tells us is that education is important. Okay, very few people disagree with that. It tells us that employment is the best way to guard against poverty. Again, not many people disagree with that. The more controversial part of it is what about family structure? And the way I interpret that is that it obviously is better economically if you're sharing economic resources. And that's true. And it's even more true if you're low income. And so I think it's correct to worry about the growth in the number of single earner households, particularly women-headed households, because women still earn less if you're worried about poverty. What I don't think the interpretation of that is that there's something magical about marriage. Marriage was the expression of a desire to have children with this person and raise them together rather than the cause of it. So there's nothing causal. Right? You know, actually, one of the reasons for the big rise in non-marital births is, is the fall in shotgun marriages. You know, it's not clear that actually if we could find some policy that would actually get all these people that are getting pregnant outside marriage and marry them off through some government, you know, compulsory government marriage program, that they would do any better or that the kids would do any better. And so I think the success sequence has in some hands been misused to make is actually an empirically unfounded argument for marriage. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. 
in a way, the most powerful idea in the book is that these economic, educational, and family conditions that we've been talking about have really profound consequences. It's not just that people lose their job. It's that it contributes to a whole set of pathologies, including substance abuse, criminality, suicide, poverty, and so on. I guess my question is, why did it take us so long to notice? Things weren't good before, say, Donald Trump became president, and yet so many of us missed it. Why? I think because so many of us weren't paying attention to one thing, but but I think at some deeper level, and when I say, like, I mean, I include myself very much among the people that, that failed in this regard to really take some of these issues seriously. I think it, if we're going to be kinder to ourselves, I guess I'd say it didn't realize how long it would go on. Maybe didn't realize how deeply these problems were overlapping with each other and didn't take seriously enough questions of identity and purpose and culture. So if you look at the numbers and you say, look, on there and in the long run, free trade, automation, immigration, they're all, they're all good, right? What we didn't pay attention to was the fact that on net and in the long run means that somebody somewhere right now is getting screwed. And for all the discussion of lifelong learning, place-based policy, et cetera, just never delivered on that side of it. And we hoped that it would just write itself. It would correct itself. It would come good. And it didn't. And one of the reasons it didn't was because people got stuck. They got trapped. And because the identity shock of a lot of these changes went well beyond just the economic and social trends. So there's the stuff you can see in charts and data, data, data fields. But a lot of this speaks to problems that it's really hard to get numbers for. And so we now see the rise of so-called deaths of despair, both in the US and in Canada, from opioids, and suicide, and alcohol. And those are three times higher among men than among women. And they're particularly high in, in areas that were hit hardest by these economic trends. And so the idea that people, well, people will just move and get a new job and retrain and so on. Like on paper, that's tr that seems plausible. But in practice, you know, humans are flesh and blood and they're strongly identified with their family, with their community and so on. And I, so I think that sort of liberal technocrats <laughs> or whatever what I call, just, just didn't get that. And it took things like some of the rise of populism to actually act as a wake-up call. And gender is a big part of that story, which again, it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people in sort of technocratic circles to take seriously issues around gender and how particularly working class men have been hit so hard. I want to come to the subject of gender-based analysis in a minute. Um, but before I get there, I just want to take up a point that you made earlier, Richard, which is that American men seem to be performing worse than men in, in other peer jurisdictions, including mm. our own Canada and Britain. Um, obviously, that's not to say British and Canadian boys and men aren't facing their own challenges. But what is it about the American economy and society that seems to be producing even worse outcomes? You mentioned earlier uh, the inadequacies of the welfare state. Is it the dynamism of the market? Is it other policy choices like trade and trade assistance? Does it reflect a more general lack of solidarity. Why, in short, is America a bit of an outlier on these matters? Hmm. Yeah, so I think you framed it correctly as an outlier because those trends are seen elsewhere. They're just not, not as dramatic. So, I mean, actually, I cite the work of Miles Korak, who is a Canadian economist, and his work shows that upward mobility rates from, from the bottom 10th, the income distribution are twice as high for women as they are for men. 
And so, and I think that does actually get that those sorts of statistics give us a bit of a clue as to why the US is US is even worse than other countries in terms of what's happened to men. Which is, first of all, as we already mentioned, I think there's just there isn't such a net to catch them. We don't have active labor market policies. We're not as we don't provide such good unemployment. And so, when you fall, you you fall further and harder potentially. But I also think it's because whilst there has been a growth in economic inequality in you know, many countries around the world, there has been somewhat more dramatic in the U.S. And what's interesting is that being in a poor family, a poor neighborhood, or an unstable family, a lower-performing school, all affects boys more than girls. And so what that means is if you have a more economically unequal society, you should expect to see worse outcomes for boys and men, because it turns out that boys and men are hurt more by poverty and inequality than girls and women, which is a very counterintuitive thought, but the evidence on this now is quite clear. And so actually, the struggles of American men and boys are partly a byproduct of the growth in economic inequality in the US. At the same time, the fact that men are struggling in the labor market is adding to economic inequality in the US. And so there's an intergenerational element to male problems in the US, which is partly the result of the, just the, the greater economic inequality. And so I, th- I say something like this in the book, that, that if you're worried about economic inequality on the, on, and you're on the left, say you really need to worry about boys and men. But if you're worried about what's happening to boys and men and you're on the right, then you really need to worry about economic inequality. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. But just in parentheses, as, as you know, Richard, in conservative circles, there's a tendency to say, that inequality is a function of, you know, market forces, and that is it need not be a concern of public policy. And in fact, what you're saying is the the kind of transmission of the consequences of inequality ought to indeed be an area of concern for policymakers, even if kind of as a normative matter, inequality itself doesn't necessarily concern you that much. I mentioned earlier uh, gender-based analysis. Let me set this question up. It'll be familiar for some of our Canadian listeners, because in Canada, especially under the Trudeau government, we've seen a real commitment to gender-based analysis, uh, what's now called GBA+. It's reflected in the analysis of individual policy measures, as well as the federal budget. I don't know any policy analyst who'd say that it's a bad development, um, but it seems to me that there is a risk that gender-based analysis becomes a synonym for analyzing impact of policy on women. Part of that, of course, is a redress for a policymaking process that for a long time neglected women. But there's something counterintuitive that at the precise moment we're seeing progress on this type of policy discourse, it's arguably men, not women, who require greater attention. Um, Just to give you an example, uh, the Trudeau government has, for arguably good reasons, chosen to impose more stringent regulations on the development of new oil and gas projects. Listers may agree or disagree based on climate policy, but it seems to me that there's been little analysis of the gender effects in terms of the impact on employment. I guess, Richard, that's a long way of saying, how do we ensure that we extend the tools of gender-based analysis to both men and women and that we consider the differentiated effects of different policy choices? Well, yeah, thank you for sharing some of that. I didn't actually know all of that. And so it's helpful. I I think that it's, 
as you say, like no no policy analyst is going to be against the idea of gender based analysis because we all we always want more data, and in particular we want to look at the, the heterogeneity of impacts. We want to look at like who's being hurt and helped by this. What you know, who are the different groups, and we should be disaggregating the impact. And so, like, like if know, knowing more stuff is like a good thing, <laughs> you know, the risk of the risking controversy, right? <laughs> and so, so it's great. But I also agree that and I could give you an example of how this actually was activated during the COVID during the COVID years. But of course, once you've got in place those gender-based analyses, you, it really is it is necessary then to look at it both ways. It is if you discover well, here's something that's going that way. That's interesting. That's 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 huge. That seems to be really affecting men men and boys more than women and girls, and vice versa. Then I then I think you need to be symmetrical. There's a in the U.S. we have a gender policy council now in the White House, but it only considers gender inequalities that run against women and girls, which I think is both wrong empirically and also a massive missed political opportunity. By the way, that's a that's a discussion for politics, not not for policy. But interestingly. <laughs> The the result of the work by and large of women's groups to actually have more of this data has been sometimes to allow us to see gender inequalities when they run the other way. So a global nonprofit, for example, has done an incredibly good job of, of getting gender disaggregated health data. That became the main source of information that led us to realize that men were much more likely to die from COVID than women. And not because different case levels, not because of pre-existing conditions, but just were more likely to die. Fifty percent higher rate death rate among men, conditional on infection across the world. And so they've got an organisation. But it was interesting to watch this organisation go through some sort of quite interesting sort of contortions because it was founded for women, and then actually it becomes it, it's pumping out this data showing that men are dying. <laughs> and and <laughs> and even when I used their data to write about it, I could sense that they weren't as enthusiastic about me using their data as they should have been, in my view. So that's a great example of what you're talking about, which is this, which is this tension. And to be fair, until incredibly recently, the cause of gender equality has been synonymous with the cause of women and girls. So just that, that, I mean, you only have to go back, I think, 30, 40 years maybe. And that was as a basic proposition, that was true. It is no longer true in every area of society, but that's a, it's really hard to update your priors. And of course, we have all these institutions who are based on those priors. And you have a political culture in which even raising the problems of boys and men can be seen as a risky proposition, which means the only people that raise it are the crazies which mean that people can say anybody who talks about this issue is crazy. So we've, we've really neatly closed the circle there on the issue. Well, it only reinforces why your book is so important. I, I want to come back to the, the subject of the economy and the, the structural changes that you described earlier. The, the, the 20th century good producing economy was an economy in which if you had a strong back, a good work ethic and common sense, you could carve, carve out a middle class life. You only need to go back a couple of generations, and that's the story of my family. The, the knowledge economy or the service economy, however one describes it, has, has changed that somewhat. The real currency in the marketplace is cognitive abilities and what you might even describe as social capital. Do you want to talk a bit about how this transformation has diminished some of the comparative advantages that men used to bring to the market? And perhaps more importantly, assuming that this kind of labor market that skews in favor of service and knowledge is going to have some staying power. What do we need to do to help boys and men compete and ultimately sustain lives that bring a degree of financial security 
and and dignity? Well, the, I think you, you've answered part of the question already, frankly, because it's obviously true that like a strong back and so on, that the physical advantages that men have are much less in the labor market up today. No, no question. And, and I think it's also true that that's going to continue to be the case. And so then we say, okay, we're in this new world now. And you've mentioned cognitive skills. Actually, a lot of social scientists will talk about non-cognitive skills, which I think you also alluded to, which is these sort of relational skills, so-called soft skills, et cetera which are more important. I, I, I don't know the numbers, but I, I remember looking at a study which looked at how many times during a working day do you communicate with somebody and what happened over time. And it had you know, gone from sort of three times a day to now, I'm sure to most people, it feels like 4,000 times a day. But it's just like the number of interactions it required to much more social, much more relational. And so then the question becomes like, what does that mean for men? Well, if on average women have more of those skills than men, that means on average that it's, it's, it's an economy that's currently somewhat more beneficial to them, having had an economy that's somewhat more beneficial the other way around. So, but I don't think that means you should be too fatalistic about it. Number one, these are not hardwired. So up to, although there are some differences between men and women, which are based in biology, I think it's crazy to deny that. Actually, it's just huge, huge room for men to develop those skills. There are many, many, many more men who can flourish in those service sector jobs than currently are doing so, right? When we have so few men in things like education, healthcare, social care, counseling, et cetera, even if we don't think that under conditions of ideal equality that it would be 50%, it's going to be more than 10%. And so these distributions of personality differences between men and women overlap a lot more than the occupations currently do. So there's a lot of room. There will then still be plenty of plenty of jobs left over, which maybe more, are more attractive to or suited to men. I, it's interesting, I just, you know, having this conversation with some of my colleagues, you know, younger, more liberal, mostly women at the Brookings Institution, we were talking about jobs where they were quite happy for men to keep being a majority. So construction, yeah, they were like, yeah, you can have that. Deep sea fishing, yeah, I don't care about that. Firefighting. And now it's not to say that we shouldn't want women doing that. They're actually even flying fighter planes. They, they're like, fine, you can have that. I mean, he's going to literally say, yeah, 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 yeah. The guys can have those, that's fine, <laughs> right? And maybe some of the oil jobs that we were just talking about too, they're like, yeah, fracking, yeah, you can have that. And, and that's okay. And actually, I thought that what a great moment where we can start to say, look, okay, we just know some of these jobs are going to remain more male-oriented. That's okay. So I think with a but with really concerted efforts to help men get into those jobs, including some skills, then then I think we can do a lot more than we currently are. I'm worried that this framing that it's now a female-friendly economy can start to sound a bit too fatalistic. We've got a long way to go before I can, a long way to go before I'm going to worry that men have somehow a biological disadvantage. Just on this subject, there's a growing argument on the left and right that the decline in the goods producing part of the economy, I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, of manufacturing, wasn't merely a, a function of market forces. It was also a consequence of policy choices, including, for instance, more liberalized trade and tax and regulatory preferences for in, intangible parts of the economy. If you follow that logic, then ostensibly the government could and even should reverse some of those policy choices and instead actively cultivate more opportunities in parts of the economy where boys and men, and particularly those without post-secondary credentials, could find something resembling middle-class opportunity. What do you think of those arguments, Richard? Is, is that a practical idea? Is that something that governments ought to be pursuing? I, I think yes and no. So yes to part of your question, no to another. So we should clearly have a 
a playing field that is level in terms of taxation. And so to the extent there's any evidence that, that, that tangibles are being taxed more heavily than intangibles, then uh, that strikes me just from an economic efficiency point of view as bad news. And, and you know, there are ongoing debates about this that I'm not qualified to adjudicate, but I will just say as a principle, it feels to me like we should be being neutral about that. But I don't think we should be, that, that a principle of neutrality means that I don't think we should be subsidizing manufacturing either or turning our back on, on free trade by and large, because I do still believe that on net and in the long run, that free trade is better for our society. What we need to take more seriously is the ways in which the costs might be falling disproportionately or more salient. So, you know, for so for example, like China coming into the World Trade Organization probably sliced off about three million US manufacturing jobs, but actually also made goods much cheaper. So on 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 that, you say, well, okay, so you're a US, you know, you're a US person, you're getting, you know, much cheaper goods in Walmart from China. And sure, some people lost their jobs. But if you're one of the people who lost your job, well, that's not such a great trade. And by the way, even if on there you're buying a bunch of stuff more cheaply, and so you've taken another job, a less well-paid job, a lower status job, let's say on net, even you as an individual are better off. Are you better off psychologically? What are, you know, are, are you better off as a human being? And just don't, we just you know, as economists, I just don't think we've taken those questions of identity seriously enough, as I as I mentioned earlier. So as a general proposition, I think the failure has has been to and I think this is a broader point, the failure has been to deal with the byproducts of some of these changes, rather than to engage in the changes all together. I think that's really where the failure is. So we go back, should we have done NAFTA? You know, is the World Trade Organization a bad idea? Do we need more like defensive trade policy? As a general proposition, my answer to that is still no. But I think we got the politics of the distributional consequences really badly wrong. And now, now, now of course, we're in danger of overcorrecting the other way. Let me end with a personal question. Listeners will discern that you're not American. In, in fact, before coming to Washington, you worked as a senior advisor to the Liberal Democratic Party in, in Britain. As a former advisor to a Canadian prime minister who now spends a lot of time in the United States, I'm, I'm curious about that transition. Uh, what was it like establishing your credentials and credibility in the American marketplace of ideas, especially given the common perception that Americans are less inclined to competitive analysis? Well, actually, the transition into and out of government is one that you're going to like, that's probably harder than anything else, right? Because you, you know, in, in government, you just, I don't know, you become like an avatar of yourself. It's just this just ridiculous, insane kind of work. And, and also, you kind of get your eyes opened to the ways in which political decisions are actually made as opposed to the way people outside think that they're made. And that's very useful to know, of course. And that politicians are human beings, just like the rest of us, with all the, you know, some of the same frailties. But the transition over here to the US has actually been quite good for me because I've largely focused on kind of US issues, albeit drawing on some of my UK experience. I agree there's an insularity to a lot of US and policymaking, but that means that actually bringing some of that knowledge from another country is quite useful. And what I've been struck by is how the structure of many of the arguments and difficulties are very similar in different places, even if the specifics of the policy are, are different. And what that means, I think, is sometimes, you know, I'll risk saying that sometimes a degree of ignorance of the details of the policy and of the decades of argument that have gone on around it can be useful in terms of just keeping your eye on the ball as to what's going on here. Like, what is the EITC for again? It's actually not a bad question to ask when other people are just dug in on, should we have a second earner ITC or is that taper in the wrong place? Or whatever. Like, wait, 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 what's it for again? 
<laughs> is, it, is it doing what it's supposed to do? <laughs> and is actually, so there's a kind of value in ignorance here, but that could be me just post hoc. That could be a post hoc justification for not knowing as much as I should. Well, those observations reflect a, a high degree of, of modesty. And proof of that is the extraordinary book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. Richard Rees from the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for that great conversation, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>